This is a People First Radio podcast. In response to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities position paper on housing, Dr. Nathaniel Loster, along with Jens von Bergman, penned a column called UBCM Shenanigans, in which they discussed the housing affordability crisis and outlined the role they believe some municipalities are playing in it. Nathan Loster is an associate professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia and the author of The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. I was able to speak with him about his response to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities position paper on housing. Dr. Louster, welcome to People First Radio. Previously on this program, I spoke with Craig Hodge, Coquitlam City Councilor and an executive with the Union of BC Municipalities about a paper from that organization. That paper discussed housing affordability and made the case that it isn't just an issue of supply and demand. Notably, it cited that the rate of population growth in BC was approximately the same as the rate of new housing. What is your response to that report? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that overall, my response to the report is that it was uh, misguided, and it was misguided on several layers. One of those is that it was misguided in terms of trying to make this case that there's no problem, effectively. And that's kind of where the report starts, is this idea that we don't have a problem of housing supply. And they do this in part, as you note, by looking backwards and saying, well, the population has only grown by this much, and it seems to roughly match how the housing has grown. Well, I mean, part of the problem with that is that especially when we have such low vacancy rates in BC, and we've had those low vacancy rates for quite some time, uh, effectively what that's showing is that the amount of housing that we're building is capping the amount of population growth that we can receive. So we probably would get a lot more people coming here and a lot more people staying here rather than leaving if our housing was more affordable. And uh, right now with the housing becoming increasingly unaffordable and the supply not keeping in pace with the demand of housing, that means that we're actually losing a lot of people that would love to stay here but feel like they can't afford it here. And we're probably increasingly attracting more people who feel like they can afford the high price of Vancouver rather than the full range of people who would like to come here. So that's the kind of process that we set in motion when we're not building enough supply to keep up with demand. And of course, we know it's not keeping up with demand in the sense of if we want prices to stay relatively constant or go down, heaven forbid, we really need to build a lot more supply to get there. So what is the role of municipalities in all of this? So municipalities are really been given by the province these extraordinary powers over land control uh, within their boundaries. And those powers determine effectively what kind of things can be built. Um, so I'm part of a project uh, where me and my um, co-author, the same co-author on the post, have been working towards trying to actually cobble together all the municipal zoning codes for all of metropolitan Vancouver, which is 21 different municipalities and organizations. And we've brought all these codes together and we're trying to look at them all. And it's an enormously complicated task in part because there are just so many different kinds of ways that municipalities actually constrain development. Everything from maximum heights, which seems relatively straightforward, to setbacks, how far um, a building has to be from the edge of the lot, to the floor space ratio, how much floor space you can get on a lot, depending on the size of the lot in terms of its total dimensions. 
So all of these different regulations come together um, and really put a constraint on how much can be built on a lot. And that really slows down and prevents development of different forms, especially of housing when we're talking about uh, BC and our current needs. And that's where we actually see this really big effect that municipalities are having on supply. And for them to not even recognize that, which seemed to be the real gist of the UVCM report, was really problematic. So do you have any speculations as to why the UBCM would come out with with a report making this suggestion? Uh, I mean, I think it's a pretty straightforward response to David Eby, uh, the attorney general and also the housing minister, um, taking note of municipalities as real barriers to getting a lot of housing built. And of course, he's seeing this, I think, on a very case by case basis with a lot of the more affordable housing that the province has been attempting to fund within municipalities and seeing this get shut down um, in project after project by lengthy delays or um, neighborhood opposition and saying, you know what, we actually need to get the municipalities on side here to actually work with us rather than working against us in producing a lot of this affordable housing and getting it through. So I think that's where it's coming from is he's been increasingly vocal about this and he suggested he's going to be authoring some legislation at the provincial level to reform or in some way uh, change this dynamic that we see where municipalities have been holding up housing. So I think that's what UBCM report was responding to. In a somewhat related development, the city of Victoria has recently approved a streamlined process to greenlight affordable housing developments. Are you aware of that, uh, that legislation and what do you make of it? Yeah, I'm aware of it. I mean, I don't live in Victoria. Heard uh, it being discussed and in part saw it going around on Twitter and uh, being really lauded by a lot of affordable housing activists. Um, people like Jill Atkey with the BC Nonprofit Housing Association are really excited by this. And, and I'm, and corresponding, I'm pretty excited by it too. We tried some similar um, processes here in the city of Vancouver um, in terms of the local city council to try and do something similar, but we didn't get it passed in terms of uh, attempting to get um, affordable housing really fast-tracked in terms of not having to go through a lot of these same municipal processes that are holding up housing. So it's really exciting to see Victoria move ahead with that. And now it sounds like Saanich is also looking at uh, uh, that legislation. So, so I'm really hopeful that that will also be a model that will spread uh, and will help in terms of the affordable housing side. I also wanted to ask about some of the other factors the UBCM identified in their report as contributing to the decline in housing affordability. Uh, for example, the figure that one in five property purchases are being made by investors. What do you make of some of the the other, you called them in your response piece, uh, villains identified by the UBCM? Yeah, I mean, housing is a big, complicated uh, sort of field. Um, there are some really simple things that we do know, which is that, you know, adding more supply will really help with, with affordability. But how that supply gets added, uh, where that supply goes and how that then contributes to affordability, all these things can get quite complicated when you get into the weeds of how it's working. Um, but it's important to keep in mind a couple of things with respect to, say, investor purchases. One, when investors purchase homes, they almost always go into the rental market, which assists with affordability in renters. So it's not a terrible thing for investors to then rent out their properties because renters are often people who are even in more dire need of housing and facing these shortages than people who are looking to buy a home. Two, the investment percentage of, of a property is being held by investors doesn't really seem to have gone up over the past 
20, 30 years, it's not been a big change in terms of the portions of properties that are being owned by investors. So investors have been a part of our market for a long time, and it's not clear that this is actually in any way really contributing to affordability dynamics. It may have some, uh, it may change the dynamics in terms of market upswings and downswings, although we haven't really seen many downswings for quite some time in BC, but uh, just how much investors are involved. But it's not clear there's a direct link to a lot of our affordability troubles. On the same note, last year you released a paper that looked into a number of narratives about housing in BC. What did you find when it comes to evidence on the impact of things like foreign buyers, vacant properties, and other suspected causes of the rise in property valuations? Well, it's been really interesting to sort of watch a lot of these uh, narratives unfold. Um, And oftentimes they are kind of aligned to this pushback um, that says we don't need new supply. It's not going to help. So there really does seem to be an alignment between a lot of these narratives and the UBCM report. But um, it's quite notable that we've brought in policies over time to tackle these different narratives. And again and again, we don't see a big effect. Um, we don't see the policy, which, which also helps track these different narratives. We can track foreign buyers in terms of different definitions. We're tracking vacancies in terms of empty homes tax and speculation and vacancy tax. And they're not big. The numbers are not large in terms of uh, properties that might be seen as part of a toxic demand, if you will. So that really points us back to, yes, we actually do need to increase supply. Um, we can reduce some toxic demand. It's not clear, and and I've raised real concerns that that things like the foreign buyer tax um, actually have some some problems in terms of broader narratives that can very easily turn in racist directions. But even setting that aside, it's not clear that it's doing much. The best study that we have indicated that we might have seen a brief drop in the price of single-family detached houses, not condominiums, due to the foreign buyer tax for basically one year, and then it reverted back to where it was before, and there wasn't really any long-term effect. So that's just, again, an example of of how little effect these policies attempting to tackle toxic demand seem to have, mostly because we don't get a lot of evidence that toxic demand is a big part of the story. Instead, it's this broader notion that we don't have enough supply for people who really do want to live here and can't. So given what you've just said, in really, really simple terms, uh, the cost of living has gone up by such a large factor over the last five years compared to historically. So where does that really come from? Is that just an issue of supply and demand? I mean, I think that's the underlying issue, right? And and again, there's lots of other things that may relate to this. Uh, another thing that I think shows up in the UBCM report is this notion of REITs, real estate investment uh, trusts, and related companies that might be um, sort of rating housing stock and, and investing a lot. I mean, this too is tied to usually what do they do when they buy the stock? They rent it out, and that helps reduce rents, which is actually helpful. But I mean, the broader notion of of these companies coming in, where are they coming in? Well, they're very clear about the places where they invest, and it's places that they see as being supply constrained. They don't go into markets if markets are actually building enough housing to support local residents. They only go in when they see that they're not building enough. So they're really, if you want to think of them as preying on, on cities, they're only preying on the cities that aren't actually keeping up. Uh, enough supply to meet demand. So that's the kind of dynamic that it sets in place. And that's where I think 
that supply and demand notion really underlies a lot of different problems that we see emerging. And without addressing that, it's kind of like playing that whack-a-mole game. You know, you're not actually hitting the underlying problem unless you're building a lot more supply. Both non-market, which again, super exciting. We're seeing this in Victoria and market supply. And, and both of those are going to be needed. So I think that that is really the underlying narrative that I think we really do need to address. And you say in your response to the UBCM report that it is evidence municipalities probably won't get out of the way in BC without a bit of stern nudging. What would that stern nudging look like? Well, you know, we've got a lot of interesting models of that now, which is kind of fun. And I will say, too, before I I go too far down this lane, I think there are a lot of municipal politicians who really get it. And I think Victoria is a good example of that, right? I mean, this legislation is an example that they get it, that they're getting in the way of, of constructing housing. So that's really great to see. But in terms of this, yes, what kind of what could that stern nudging look like? Right now, uh, we've just got a great example from New Zealand, and that's sort of one of the places that I really look to as providing a model of this. And New Zealand is a similar size jurisdiction. Obviously, it's got its own federal powers, not just provincial powers, but it's a similar size jurisdiction. And what they've done, especially within major metropolitan areas in the city or in the country is they've said, you know, you can't actually uh, prevent people densifying on lots up to a certain amount as a base. And then that amount is even higher. Your heights have to go up in terms of the the minimum height that you have to allow if you get closer into major transit investments. So they've done this kind of rolling back of some of the municipal powers to exclude housing. And that's effectively what we're talking about here is municipalities have these enormous powers to exclude housing, to say we're not going to allow it here. And that's what should be, I think, reformed in terms of enabling um, developers to then respond to broader needs of people by constructing more housing. So that's the reform model of New Zealand, basically just making a major reform of municipal powers. In places like California, um, they've more directly tied it to estimates of need that come from the state. And then municipalities have to figure out how they're going to meet that need, how they're going to enable at least um, that much housing to be constructed. So that's another approach that we've seen work. Um, And I think BC's got the infrastructure for that with the housing needs reports recently being mandated at the provincial level. So that would be something else we could see. But I think BC could follow both of those uh, different pathways of reforming the powers of municipalities directly and also potentially tying municipal planning more closely to needs reports and needs estimates. We've talked a lot about supply in general. When it comes to specific types of supply, what housing is going to get built where, we've talked about municipalities having the ability to exclude developments that they don't like, but how how does the type of housing being built in a specific lot somewhere get determined? Who makes that decision? Uh, Great question. So in terms of who makes the decision on a specific lot, you've already got uh, in all municipalities that lot tied to specific zoning that says this is what can be built here and this is how it can be used for this lot. So that's that's the thing that any owner of that lot has to start with. Uh, if you're a developer, you can then decide, do I want to build something new within this lot? You know, if it's like a single family lot and, and it's zoned that way, then the only new thing you can build is another single family house. 
So you're not actually adding any new housing stock if you build a new house. You're just switching out an old house that was probably cheaper, but also more run down for a new house that is more expensive, but also you know, better maintenance, right? So that's the trade-off the developer can make. Now, if a lot is rezoned to enable greater density, then that developer has a lot more options. They can either build that house or they can then build a set of townhouses, maybe a low-rise apartment complex, et cetera. So the more choices you've got as a developer, um, the more you can look across those choices, look out there to see whether or not people are looking to move to this place and then decide whether or not you want to build something that might be more dense, might cost more to build, but in the end, you can sell it to more people and make more money than you could make building a detached house. So that's, of course, a private developer. They're looking for these opportunities, and that's how they make their living. On a nonprofit developer, they're looking at slightly different sets of things, but they are still looking at broader housing needs, needs for people in the community, and they're trying to decide, can we build um, something that will house a bunch of people uh, but also keep us within our budget that we've been provided either through grant funding from the government or, or whatever other means to actually help house people. Um, they can't generally house people in detached houses because it's just it doesn't fit within their budgets. So they're usually looking for at least a low rise apartment uh, building or townhouses in order to be able to house um, as many people as possible, given the budgets of nonprofit organizations and uh, non-market housing. So they're they're often just prevented outright from building any kind of housing on, on the vast majority of most municipal land because most of it is reserved for single-family detached housing. So if you change that and enable low-rise apartments, townhouses, et cetera, at the very least to be built across your municipal landscape, all of a sudden that has a much um, greater realm for nonprofit developers to operate in that they can build all across the municipality and build a whole bunch of new housing. So it does depend on the kind of operator, but, but they're all, all the different developers, um, the, all different people who might be adding housing to a community are all going to be constrained by the municipal zoning code. And of course, another piece to this is you can't build housing without land to build it on. I'm wondering about the types of plots of places that new housing is being built, can be built. Are we often talking about the outskirts of a town maybe where there is undeveloped land or where are we seeing development in BC? And how does that, like the type of land being developed on correlate to the type of housing being built there? Yeah, really good question. Um, you know, it depends on where we are. In places like Metro Vancouver, we mostly see new development coming into um, older spots within the uh, metropolitan area. And that is because in part, we've got a pretty strong urban growth boundary that's set up, especially with support of the agricultural land reserve in across BC. So that really constrains the ability of developers, for instance, to buy a farm and then turn it into a bunch of housing. Across North America, that's the predominant pattern we see, right? You, you cities tend to grow outward, developers buy farms, they turn it into single family housing. And so you really see these big sprawling cities. But places where you've got some kind of a growth boundary, some kind of protective capacity to preserve those farms as farms, like we see here in BC, then developers really do have to change that pattern and they spend more time looking at uh, redeveloping old lots. 
Now, it may be, and in many places it is, the case that they're just redeveloping old single-family houses into new single-family houses. Again, that's not adding any stock, and that's been part of the problem for a lot of the development we've seen across BC. But other places where they're allowed, they've been able to actually construct new apartment buildings, uh, construct new high-rises in some cases. We've seen this especially in places where you've got a lot of old, disused industrial land that might once have supported industry, but that industry has disappeared. And so a lot of, for instance, uh, Metro Vancouver, a lot of its recent development is apartment buildings that have been rezoned to be allowed on these old industrial lands. And once they become allowed, then developers really start building them and start building them out. So that's been the pattern that we've seen here. So given the choice, a developer, from what you've seen, would tend to opt for a higher density space on a given plot? as opposed to a single one? Generally, generally speaking, yeah. Um, and then that's that's the, you know, they, they have their own sets of costs that they're dealing with in terms of materials, in terms of, uh, you know, do they need an elevator uh, in, in what they're constructing? That adds a big price chunk. Uh, do they switch from wood to concrete? There's all these different um, uh, things that they're working through in terms of costs on their side. But generally speaking, um, when they get the chance to build more densely, uh, to add more units um, across BC, they tend to do it because they can sell that uh, product for more money than they're putting into it and make a profit on it. So that's definitely been the case where we see uh, that demand that's outstripping supply. Um, Developers will respond by building more supply and they'll build more densely to get there in places where they're constrained from building, from sprawling outward. When it comes to all of your research into housing in Metro Vancouver and in this province and the UBCM report we've been discussing, are there any things you wish people in the broader community knew from from what you've seen? Uh, Well, I think we're getting across, and I guess this is one thing that I think is, um, is kind of exciting for me. There actually is pretty broad support or uh, reform of zoning and and, uh, actually building a lot more supply and enabling a lot more of these different forms of building to show up in what have otherwise been pretty exclusive neighborhoods. Um, But yes, I do still wish um, that more people knew uh, all of the different somewhat arcane uh, zoning rules that that, that municipalities are currently working through to constrain housing. Um, we've got a map up uh, to show all that off for Metro Vancouver. And so you can always just check out our sociology of zoning at UBC to find that map and, and look at all the zoning all across Metro Vancouver and zoom in on any code that you're interested in. But that's something that I think that uh, people are becoming more aware of. I don't think people always know that that's what's going on. So when I often take my, my university students around on tours um, I try to point out all the sort of codes that are that are constructing the built environment around us in a way that you can't see unless you're looking at the document while you're walking through a neighborhood. Um, and many times students are just amazed, right? They, they sort of assume that, oh, well, commercial doesn't show up off of major arterials because that's it's not economic for them to do so, right? Well, it's actually doesn't really have that much to do with the economics of it. It's because they're not allowed to move off of those major arterials, right? There's no, there's no zoning to support uh, those commercial uh, outlets. That's why we haven't had uh, uh, the sort of emergence of more corner stores in neighborhoods that, that we used to have, right? Because they're not allowed by zoning. So, so there's all these different municipal codes that really do determine our built form and people mostly are not aware of them. 
But they have at least become increasingly aware of how those codes might be constraining housing. That's something I wish to, to, to make people more aware of. I've got your map pulled up now of uh, Metro Vancouver. I'm going through and looking at the zoning. Is this something that exists for, for municipalities broadly? Unfortunately, no. Uh, you know, there are some places that I think have collected. So if you've got a, a like a provincial authority that says you have to submit all your plans to us and you have to do it in an integrated way, then you could easily produce this for an entire province, for an entire state, etc. Um, but it took a ton of work for us to try and do this just for Metro Vancouver. And in part, it's because each little municipality has their own way of doing things. Instead of having a harmonized way of sort of controlling land, Every municipality has been given their own ability to do, do whatever they want effectively. So that makes it really difficult to harmonize. So you could get more maps like this if we actually did some reform of zoning. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation today? I'm, I'm personally kind of excited to see where David Eby goes. I do hope he moves us a little closer towards what we see as models in New Zealand and, and potentially California um, to, to move us through this. But I do also want to, again, just reiterate that I think a lot of municipalities are doing great things. And again, Victoria was just a recent example of that. Um, so I hope that also still continues, that we do see municipalities that do get it, to, that they also continue to reform themselves in terms of thinking through how can we do this better. Dr. Loster, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with me today. A pleasure. Nathan Loster is an associate professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. 